But I think that with the clinical nurse specialist role in when folks, because we are the, the this clinical expert and that we are really trying to pull in everyone, it's not that we're trying to take over, it's really that we're trying to just ensure that everything's being considered, that the bet and then and everything that we're doing is in the best interest of the patient. What is a clinical nurse specialist and what is their importance in the healthcare realms? Let's talk all about it with Dr. Phyllis Whitehead, president of the National Association of Clinical Nurse Specialists, right here on episode 391 of the Nurse Keith Show. Well, hello there, this is Nurse Keith. This podcast, of course, is always about you, your personal professional development, your nursing and healthcare career, and the healthcare system in the bigger picture. And I'm always here to share education, lots of ideas, frequent diatribes, and informative interviews with some of the most inspiring people I can find from the worlds of healthcare, nursing, education, entrepreneurship, medicine, and beyond. I love having you along for the ride, and I thank you from the bottom of my heart for being part of the growing Nurse Keith Nation. If you'd like to help other people find the show, there's a great way to do that. Leave a rating and a review over on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or Amazon or Spotify. It really helps other people find the show and gives me a little warm, fuzzy feeling in my heart. And what also will give me a warm, fuzzy feeling in my heart is if you go to Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Nurse Keith and consider becoming a patron, giving a little teeny tiny bit every month to help support the show as little as $2 per month. I would love that. And you can get some awesome prizes and premiums in return for your donation to helping support the show. And like I said, we are here today with Dr. Phyllis Whitehead, president of the National Association of Clinical Nurse Specialists. You can find the show notes in the drop-down menu at nursekeith.com. And Dr. Whitehead, it is such a pleasure to have you here. It is really an honor. And the first thing I want to ask you is, what is it that clinical nurse specialists actually do? Because I actually do get that question fairly regularly. Oh, it's a great question. Uh, I guess the, the, my initial answer is, what can clinical nurse specialists not do oh, <laughs> in healthcare? Okay. There's a lot of different roles I think you're seeing uh, for the uh, clinical nurse specialists are trained to do. But I think the traditional, let's start with the tra- more of the traditional role for clinical nurse specialists. And we are one of the four advanced practice registered nurses, which means that we um, have um, at least master's prepared and many of us doctorally prepared uh, graduate education above and beyond what you see at, uh, with the, the bedside registered nurse. In addition, clinical nurse specialists tend to focus on, uh, in addition to the patient, nurses, and we, we call them spheres of impact. So that, that's how we're trained. And when we think about that, so you see a lot of clinical nurse specialists um, helping with education, designing educational programs, supporting nurses, being the um, uh, that content expert that the best eye nurses will come to uh, based upon the specialty. And then the final um, third sphere of impact at the system level. And that's where you see a lot of clinical nurse specialists doing projects of quality improvement, uh, being involved in those nurse sensitive outcomes, you know, like the CAUTI, the, you know, um, uh, the pneumonia acquired um, uh, infections. So I think that, that that's a big part of uh, what you see. 
Um, I think many times folks have not had the opportunity to work with clinical nurse specialists, which then leads to your question to uh, initially, Nurse Keith, uh, that we are sometimes uh, what I've heard the best kept secret. Uh, and I, I'm here to dispel that because I, I want us to be well known and folks seeking us out um, at, at, for their organizations, but not only in hospitals, but in primary care and ambulatory, wherever the uh, the patients are, I think we need to have clinical nurse specialists. Yeah. When I first heard about clinical nurse specialists, it was years ago, like 20, 25 years ago when I was first a nurse. And somehow I, I translated that into clinical nurse specialists were in the psych realm. I don't know mm-hmm. quite why I thought that, but at the time, that's what it seemed like I was hearing. Is that completely off base from several decades ago? No, it's not off base at all. Um, Well, clinical nurse specialists have been around for over 60 years. So, you know, I'm not surprised that 20 years ago that you, and I think from a psych mental health, there were many, many clinical nurse specialists and there was a huge movement and there continues to be a strong presence for clinical nurse specialists in psych mental health. Unfortunately, what's happened. You see some of us who have been in nursing for 20, 30 years, and that's where we're continuing in our careers. But around 2012, we um, we saw a doing away of the site mental health clinical nurse specialist educational program and certification exam. Uh, and so that has been, um, I think, probably where folks you're not seeing as many, we're not able to, you know, educate new folks or bring them into the psych mental health clinical nurse specialist role. So, yeah, I'm not surprised. Oh, see, this was in the early 2000s. And mm-hmm. so that's where I was coming from. And over mm-hmm. the years, it, I, I was noting it shifting and changing. That is correct. And what shifted was um, a decision was made that instead of having a clinical nurse specialist in the psych mental health, that I think what you've seen uh, arise in nurse practitioners, right? You've probably seen quite a few nurse practitioners now in the psych mental health world. I see. Okay. Yeah, there's been a lot of shifting and changing. So we have to keep up with the evolution of the of the roles. And obviously, we all know that nurse practitioners and APRNs in general are gaining traction. They're gaining recognition. And, you know, I've said this on the show before that the Bureau of Labor Statistics predicts 45% job growth for nurse practitioners through 2030 and 9% for registered nurses and 4 to 5% for doctors. So, you know, APRNs are sort of on the ascendant right now for many, many reasons. And in terms of clinical nurse specialists, are they only employed in acute care or can we find them, you know, in a variety of milieus? Great question. You see the majority of clinical nurse specialists in acute care and mm-hmm. even more so in ICUs. I think that there's a large proportion of clinical nurse specialists are there, but we're everywhere. We can be everywhere. Um, my specialty is palliative medicine, um, and that's both inpatient and outpatient. So, and so I see patients out in, in the ambulatory clinic. So that's a great opportunity for clinical nurse specialists. There are clinical nurse specialists in primary care, clinical nurse specialists that are managing chronic illness uh, in um, outpatient settings, clinics, free clinics, you name it. It, it can be across the, uh, the live spectrum. 
um, from birth because there are clinical nurse specialists with, uh, that are perinatal so that they're focusing on the, the mom as well as then the newborn. Of course, we have NICU, clinical nurse specialists, pediatrics, and then uh, adult Jero. So throughout this band, I would like, I wish that that statistic that you quoted, um, we were seeing a huge growth in clinical nurse specialists as well. I, I do think that the majority of the growth has been with the nurse practitioner role. And I'm, I'm, always, I'm very thrilled for their growth, but I would also like to be able to educate folks and, and those who are considering a change from the bedside or maybe coming into nursing uh, to be aware of the clinical nurse specialist role. Because like we mentioned, just I think um, it tends to be the most known, most popular is the nurse practitioner role, uh, which yes. which I adore. I work with nurse practitioners um, and part of the my palliative medicine um, pr- uh, program is that that we have a nurse practitioner and then we also have my role as a clinical nurse specialist. So uh, there's room for everyone. And I think yeah. a, a win and a growth for one is a win and a growth for all of us. But I would like to see that um, clinical nurse specialists get you know, get uh, some more popularity because I think it's just a great role, and I hate that people aren't so as familiar with it. So yeah, and if I went over to the Bureau of Labor Statistics website right now, mm-hmm. I'm sure if I typed in clinical nurse specialist, I don't even know if it would come up because they just sort of group. Mm-hmm. You know, nurse practitioners together, they group nurses together, whether they're associate bachelors, they don't make those delineations. So I have to do a little research on the BLS. You know, it's, uh, I'm just curious about other healthcare providers. So doctors, physical therapists, clinical social workers, surgeons, do they are they generally aware of the existence of the CNS? And if there's a CNS in the environment, do they know what a CNS does? Uh, great question. No, the answer is no. <laughs> okay. They don't. I mean, and and honestly, even our nurses don't. You know, there's not as for you know for the bedside nurse. So of course not. And that's been a big part of um, my my presidency is is advocacy. And advocacy occurs in so many platforms with so many stakeholders. And so it is important that you know I have that we clinical nurse specialists that are out there that we make our role known and that we work with folks to educate. I think that once folks learn of our role and we work with folks, they really like the role, uh, not only from an opportunity, career opportunity, but also from a leadership perspective is like, hey, this is person has a skill set that could really be helpful in our health system with the improving the outcomes as well as designing new programs and just initiatives. And that's what I love about this role. I've evolved as a clinical nurse specialist. I didn't start off uh, doing what I'm doing but had such an opportunity and have had such a rich career because of the training that I've had and the opportunities that have the, you know, that so many people throughout my career, my mentors have encouraged me. But, you know, I started off in, in home health, you know, that, and back in the day, it was a clinical nurse specialist, right? Yeah. Home health. Mm-hmm. Love it. Love it. And had an opportunity um, when I went back to school for my clinical nurse specialist uh, role in education training to um, do a needs assessment. And then after my training, I started a hospice agency, you know, in my, mm-hmm. my community. Um, mm-hmm. And so that was fun. That was a lot of fun. It was a lot of work. It was so incredibly needed. 
but it was, I had all of the skills based because of my CNS training. Um, and mm-hmm. so I, I think that that's the neat thing. And that's true for many in, in nursing and generally it, you have a lot of opportunity. There's a lot of fertile ground. And especially now with the changing landscape of healthcare, but even more importantly, as folks are leaving the, our, our beloved nursing profession, we need to be able to pull folks back in. And I think clinical nurse specialists is something that I would love to see, uh, you know, a, a resurgence of the importance of the role. And that's why I'm just so thrilled to be with you today, Nurse Keith, to talk about clinical nurse specialist, because like I said, I think it is the best secret and we want to dispel that secret, right? We want to shout from we the do. top. Yeah, come on. We do. <laughs> yeah. What's what's the minimum educational requirement to become a CNS? Minimally is master's. Just it's, very, masters. It, it's, it's aligned. We have the same training, the three Ps as a nurse practitioner. So, uh, and this, the same clinical hours, they split out off a course a little bit because we also have, in addition to that patient sphere, we have that nurse and system sphere, but um, m- minimum master's prepared. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned the three Ps. Mm-hmm. Elucidate that for us. S- certainly. Um, it's pathophysiology, pharmacology, mm-hmm. and physical assessment. So it's the mm-hmm. assessment. So the, the, and advanced at that point. So it's part of the training uh, transition. I will say that back in the day, because I'm, uh, and I, I have a seasoned clinical nurse specialist <laughs> instead of saying I'm old, but um, we didn't have that because that was the transition. So that, but it's a, we align consistently. And same thing with the consensus model that came out in 2008 and really making certain that there's consistency um, among the, as much as possible among the APRNs. Um, And I think that has helped from state to state. So as we start to continue to, or continue to expand our practice um, and our scope, and that we are all allowed to practice at the top of our licensure and, and education and training. But it varies greatly depending upon what state you live in. Sure. So the educational pathway, mm-hmm. you get an associate's or bachelor's, mm-hmm. then you enter a, a master's program. And are you taking courses with other students who might be going on to FNP or ANP or, or adult Jerry? Now it's called adult Jerry gerontology or is it a completely separate track and you you don't really interface with those particular students it depends on the program um mm-hmm. the programs uh in my state uh, there's an integration because it makes sense right because they the bait, the courses are the same and it's actually really beneficial for it to kind of mix and to integrate and so that folks become more familiar with each each role um there and then there are other programs that are very much um very strictly within you know just nurse practitioners or are just clinical nurse specialists so uh, it it really does depend on the program Okay. So pathophys, Mm -hmm. physical assessment, and pharmacology. Mm -hmm. And that would sound familiar to to any nurse practitioner, Mm -hmm. APRN student who's going through that process. Those are the kind of the the core. I guess we'd call the the core, Mm -hmm. the three central pillars Mm -hmm. of any advanced practice nurse's training. Now, when a CNS is working on, let's say, an ICU, they're working ICU unit. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and they're interfacing with the nurses and they're doing education and consulting on patients, right? Mm-hmm. And doing assessments, et cetera. When they say there's a there's a consultation meeting and you have the surgeon, you have the main physician, maybe you have a nephrologist, you have the nurse, you have the clinical nurse specialist, maybe an APRN as well, like a nurse practitioner. <laughs> is is there ever any, I don't know how to say it. Um, is there any sort of turf issue that can come up when a clinical nurse specialist is coming in as a, say, a consultant and the doctor's there, the surgeon's there, and the clinical nurse specialist is like, hmm, why don't we look at it this way? Can that become sort of a stepping on the toe kind of turf thing because you're not a doctor and even though you're of a doctor of nursing practice, can there, can there be a little... Do you know what I mean? Some friction that can happen interdisciplinary wise. Yeah, I, I, absolutely. I think that yeah, there, it, it it depends on the people, right? You know, mm-hmm. I, I have consultation all the time and um, in the ICU, and you can appreciate mm-hmm. with palliative medicine, it's usually there there's some conflict, right? Um, and it's not the outcome that anyone is hoping for um, with a serious right. condition. And, and if it's particularly at end of life and we're talking about a, potentially what we call medically inappropriate or non-beneficial care, utility care, already folks are, uh, you know, concerned and um, it's in the, the, the situation's intent. I think it's all about, yes, of course, there's, there are turf. There are turf issues even within medicine, right? Within the specialists and, you know, the hospitalists or whoever the attending and like, as you mentioned. So I think that, that is where I think clinical nurse specialists can really, um, a skilled clinical nurse specialist, you're coming in, you're going to be that end of professional perspective. It's understanding everyone's perspective. What are the recommendations for this patient? And really being able to center it on what is in the best interest? What are the medical standards for this individual patient? Where's the family? How do we come together? Let's make certain that there's good, clear communication and that we have articulated um, the recommendation. So it's, you know, and I'll just speak for myself because I think that that's my point of reference is, you know, when you go in and you help foster and facilitate that dialogue, people appreciate it. So, mm-hmm. yes, yeah, sometimes there's some difficult, you know, statements. You know, um, I'm a vital talk um, a facilitator um, and that it, a vital talk is the uh, national education for physicians, right, on how to deliver serious news. It's excellent. Mm. Um, and part of it is they call it headline. What's your headline? What's the main point you need to get across? And sometimes I have a headline for my colleagues, right, that where are we? You know, I need to understand what are you recommending? Because if I don't understand what you're trying, you know, you're recommending, how can we expect the patient who and many times it's their next of kin or surrogate decision maker Mm -hmm. to understand. Mm -hmm. And so can we talk a little bit about this so that we're all on the same page? Um, And then let's go in and let's have this conference and let's let's support one another. And and many times what I do is that if if I help out, I'll ask a question, you know, well, help me understand what this means, Dr. So-and-so. And, you know, so it becomes a very collegial, um, I think folks appreciate uh, and so it's not turf. It's like they're here to help, and we all have the what's in the best interest of the patient. So, 
Hmm. And, and I agree that there are certain folks that there are personalities that, you know, there's some ego issues um, and uh, adjusting to that. So I'm not going to ever say, oh, that's never the case because that would, that would just be, that would be an untruth, wouldn't it? <laughs> mm-hmm. But I think mm-hmm. that with the clinical nurse specialist role in when folks, because we are the, the this clinical expert and that we are really trying to pull in everyone, it's not that we're trying to take over. It's really that we're trying to just ensure that everything's being considered that the bet and then and everything that we're doing is in the best interest of the patient. Hmm. That's great. And what I'm hearing then is that a clinical nurse specialist has to be pretty diplomatic. They have to have good communication skills. I mean, any nurse does, but if you're going in consulting and you're part of that broader multidisciplinary team and you're you're an advocate for the patient. It sounds like you're also an advocate for the nurses because you're educating them. Mm-hmm. And then you actually could be seen as an advocate and ally for the physicians and the surgeons because if you, it, it sounds like you you go in showing curiosity. Like Dr. Dr. Smith, could you explain to me the, the course that you feel this, this might take if we make this particular decision, right? So it's sort of that, that, I, I see it as you're one of those members of the United Nations Security Council and you're you're going in and you're asking salient questions, I guess. Is that is that accurate? I love that. Yes, I think we're a, a diplomatic is a great way of describing it. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, mm-hmm. and, and you're right, because of our I always advocate for the bedside nurse. I'm always going to, as in my consult and my preparation, getting ready to, you know, of course, reviewing the medical record, of course, talking to the medical team. I think just as importantly, and maybe more many times, it's talking to the bedside nurse and the staff. Like, I always come up with like, what's the scoop? What's going on here? Um, so that I understand, uh, you know, their perspective. I and you know, who's spending the most time at, at the bedside with this patient? Um, and that's the nurse. And so they're going to be able to know what, what folks are understanding, what they're not, um, their communication style, you know, what, where are they coming from? Um, you know, their, the, just their health literacy. And it's just amazing mm-hmm. that to be able to get that. And then I always, always pull in the nurse to be with me, to be part of that conversation. And, I want them to give a voice many times to like you were saying, I'm like, you know, so nurse, you know, um, nurse Keith would, you know, what have you been seeing? Uh, what, what has the patient shared with you? Because sometimes that's really important if the patient is no longer able to share. Um, and so mm-hmm. pulling them into the, the dialogue uh, to, and to be part of it. And um, I think it's incredibly important. Um, and then mm-hmm. I think the other thing that is so important for the nurse to be in these meetings some follow-ups. When I, we have this great meeting, we come up with whatever the great plan is, right? With all these great minds um, at, at the bedside. And then it's the nurse that needs to make reinforce that because, you know, it's emotional, it's in charge. There's a lot of information. There's a lot of medical, you know, words that go back and forth that folks may or may not understand. And so it's that bedside nurse can say, you know, when the, they start asking questions, they can say, well, remember what, you know, Nurse Keith said, you remember what Dr. Jones said, this is what it is. So that reinforcement 
So it's the ideal uh, situation where we can have that. And I think that it's because of my training as a clinical nurse specialist, I really know how important it is. Of course, when even when I'm doing that direct patient care is to pull in the nurse and how important and to empower them and to give them a voice um, as part because it's so important. You know, it really is. And it's not that others don't do it. It's just I'm more mindful of it, I think. Mm-hmm. And if the clinical nurse specialist is what you're saying, a, a diplomat, like you're, you're walking in many worlds at once, the medical world, the nursing world, the ethical world, et cetera, in your training in the CNS program that you went to, is there training in communication and that type of role that one will assume as a CNS? Do you get really direct education around how do you negotiate these sorts of conversations, these really difficult conversations? The training does certainly um, include that. um, I I would call it, it falls within our uh, system sphere of training, Mm. because to your point where you know, you have a lot of different um, potential stakeholders. And I think the big part of it is when you start to view the the world differently, the, my lens is different, you know. So it's fun to um, watch as my team, even when we, we approach the same patient, right, or same uh, different patients, you know, maybe similarity of a case. And when they see it very much just one dimensional, me, I'm looking at it in three dimension. I'm looking at it from, yes, what's immediately happening with my patient at hand and I'm going to do everything. And we're usually pretty similar in our alignment. We mirror one another, right? I mean, it makes sense, right? You know, what I would recommend for pain management, they should recommend around that. But then the other piece of it, and that's kind of where they stop many times, but I'm also looking at, wow, this is an opportunity to educate this nursing staff here because they're not as familiar with, you know, uh, how we're using this medication or what we're doing. And so that becomes, you know, that that nurse spear issue. And then I'm like, wow, let me see my other, you know, viewpoint, my vintage is the system, whoa. Well, if it's happening on this nursing unit, is it happening on other nursing units? And do we need to broaden this so that we can be institutional and be able to have a system-wide approach and consistency standardization? So I think that that, and that my training and, and any clinical nurse specialist, because we view things differently in those kind of uh, opportunities, those dimensions, those spheres that we call them, that I think is the advantage. And that's the training because we're seeing it differently, our lens. And which just opens up that whole opportunity because that's what I'm doing all the time. And I'll, you know, I'll be sharing with my, you know, my palliative care team and they're like, whoa, Phyllis. And I'm like, oh, that's right. Wait a minute. <laughs> they're still in that patient room. I need to pull them out and get them further into that system level uh, of thinking. So yeah, absolutely. I think that is the, the beauty of the, the, the clinical nurse specialist um, and those three roles. And, you know, if you go to uh, NACNS, the website, you, you can get a little information on what a clinical nurse specialist is. And there's this beautiful diagram of how those three spheres really interact and interface and how important. And I can't do, you know, I, I'm, I'm always thinking of, of all three of those spheres. I just can't, I can't separate out. And I think that that's what's so important in the role. It's that 
that the clinical nurse specialists need to be in all three and operationalize and work in all three. And that's what makes us unique. Because let's be honest, it, 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 there are lots of folks to take care of patients. I want them to. That's great. We need everyone. And there are lots of folks that handle nursing, education and whatnot. It's not that we own that. And there are folks that do quality and system. But our role is unique because when we integrate all three of Right. That's the, that's what's so unique. And that's why clinical nurse specialists are so versatile and innovative and can move when you ask, you know, what we can do. I'm like, what well, can't we do? It's because of how we can really move and shift into different roles pretty easily because of our, our training. That's great. And when we come back from the break, I want to talk about your career trajectory, where you've been, how you got what you are how you got to where you are. And I want to talk about the diversity of the CNS world and what the NACNS is doing to combat the lack of diversity. And I'd also like to talk about your work in moral distress and clinical ethics, because it's a fascinating part of what you do. And I feel like we would be doing you and the audience a disservice if we don't talk about those particular topics. So does that sound good for the second half? Yes, it does. Great. Well, stay with us right here for this episode of the Nurse Keith Show. We are here with Dr. Phyllis Whitehead, president of the National Association of Clinical Nurse Specialists, and we'll be right back with the second half of the episode. And welcome back to the second half of the episode. We're here again with friend of the pod and my new friend, Dr. Phyllis Whitehead, president of the National Association of Clinical Nurse Specialists. And Phyllis, before the break, we were talking about what CNSs do and how they're perceived and the fact that you want to grow this particular role and grow, grow even nurses' perception of what a CNS is and that they even exist. So we, we got there <laughs> and we talked about how we'll mostly find them in acute care, but we can find them in other spaces, but we'll find them a lot of them in a hospital type of setting. Now, tell us a little bit about the National Association of Clinical Nurse Specialists, NACNS. Tell us about how long they've been around and what a little bit more of your mission as the current president. Uh, thanks. I appreciate that. Uh, this has been a wonderful opportunity to, to share not only about the importance of CNS role, but also the National Association of Clinical Nurse Specialists, uh, which is the only organization that represents all clinical nurse specialists, regardless of the specialty. And I always encourage folks, of course, you want to maintain your connection with your specialty. That makes sense because of your competency. And, and we always uh, you know, would encourage that. But don't forget about the, the national organization. And so that it's important that we hear from clinical nurse specialists about the issues. Um, and that was the whole reason of forming the uh, National Association uh, of, of Clinical Nurse Specialists, NACNS. And we've been around for many, many decades. Uh, and I, I know that we've had such wonderful pioneers to uh, and nurse leaders, clinical nurse specialists who have, um, you know, started it, uh, NACNS started in Indiana. Uh, and so I think that that is an, an important and from the, the university and the, the school of nursing there. Um, and that, that's our home. Uh, and, and it's, 
great that we we had this wonderful group of individuals and I guess visionaries, right? To to know that we needed to come together and to be able to form and uh, an association to be able to promote the the unique role of the clinical nurse specialist. And I think that that is the biggest issue that we want to hear what are the challenges of clinical nurse specialists, how we as an organization can continue to advocate for clinical nurse specialists and the role. Because as you mentioned, you know, not, uh, most folks aren't aware of the role. So it's important that we um, have a venue to uh, to come together collectively. There are over 89,000 clinical nurse specialists here in the United States. Now, there are clinical nurse specialists globally. And one of the things that we are doing uh, to advocate not only here in the States, but globally, we're going to hold the first international uh, CNS summit coming up in November. And the thing is, is that to hear from all clinical nurse specialists uh, globally and to see what the similarities are, what the challenges, what are the opportunities. And we know that there are plenty of you know, opportunities out there and we know that there are challenges as well. But for me and my presidency, in addition to you know, the, the international summit, really wanting to promote how we can come together. Because let's be honest, adv- advocacy is incredibly important. Advocacy for our patients, advocacy for nurses in general uh, and, and our organizations. But sometimes we neglect ourselves and we don't advocate for ourselves. And, and many times clinical nurse specialists are just like you said, people aren't aware that we exist. And though part of what we are hoping to be able to do is to really clarify the role that people recognize, first of all, that we're advanced practice, where we can practice, where, um, and that's part of the NACNS. That, that, that is truly our mission. It, it is to advance clinical nurse specialists. It's to support clinical nurse specialists. It's to help uh, with a national removing barriers to practice um, so that we, we can be recognized and practice in that uh, as APRNs in that arena. Yes. And that's really wonderful. And looking on the website, I can see that you do a, you conduct a census every few years. The 2022 census is apparently in process right now because there's a place where CNSs can take the survey. So if you are a CNS listening, please go over there and take the survey. Thank you. But what I can see, yeah, what I can see here from the infographic from 2020 census is that 42.4% of CNSs work in adult health and gerontology. And then it goes down from there. About half that many work in PD, and then about 14% work in family and individual, and then 10% psych mental health, 6.8% women's health, and then 3.3% neonatal. And then it breaks down what they actually do. And there's percentage of what they actually do in terms of direct patient care, assisting with research, precepting students, et cetera. And eight in 10 work full-time, which is interesting. So they're mostly full-time and many work in hospitals. But one of the things I know that is really on your mind these days is diversity. And when I look at the demographics from the 2020 census, and I'm sure you're waiting with bated breath to see the Mm -hmm. 2022 results, is that 82.5% of CNSs are white and 93.5% are female. So what do you feel 
needs to be done in order to change that particular calculation? Because it sounds like it's a real goal and a and a mission for you at this moment. It is. Thank, uh, thank you for that. It, it, I think one of the things that really resonated with me, and of course it did for everyone, um, was uh, the issues that we had seen, the, the racial injustices that have been occurring, the social injustices. Um, and as an organization, it was we wanted to, for me, a passion of, of we need to do something about it. We it's not just about um, saying, well, that's sad and we shouldn't, you know, it, it shouldn't be occurring, but what was what's within our power? And one of the things that as a board that we decided um, and is a, a passion of mine was to create a task force to really take an internal uh, audit of our organization to see how we could. Uh, we need to be able to, the communities we care for should be reflective of um, in the CNS practice and in profession. And they're not, clearly they're not. And I can say that because I, I'm, I, I'm the white female <laughs> and, and that is the, the majority uh, for clinical nurse specialists. And we need to, when we have diversity and we get different perspectives, we hear a different path. We understand what is happening with our patients, what's happening among, with our colleagues. Um, and to so many times we get into this group think, right? That I have, I know what's best for you when I have, Absolutely no idea because I haven't walked in your shoes, right? I, I cannot even um, begin to imagine the the challenges, the uh, the uh, the worries, the frustrations, right, and 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 the lack of opportunities potentially. So, with that task force, we conducted a survey to get a better feel from the membership of what you know what we how we were doing, right? You know, a great, let's see, that's how we do it. We, we want to measure, we need to quantify. And so we did. And we weren't surprised the fact that we, as you can see from the 2020 census, that we, there just, you know, it, we needed, we did not have good representation of CNSs of color, right? Or diversity. Mm -hmm. um, and mm -hmm. that is something that we uh, have been working on. We, uh, published an article talking about, you know, what we hope to uh, work on and the re recommendations back to the board. And one of the first things, of course, is the fact that this can, the work has to be ongoing um, and it's a cultural shift and it's going to take years. This is not something that's going to happen overnight. Uh, and we can convert it, transition the task force into a committee that's going to be ongoing. And of course, it's not just that committee's work. Part of my charges in my presidency is that all the committees are working towards um, diversifying, right, and ensuring that every member has equitable opportunities, right? And then from a, the graduate education, we have a graduate education committee to really work with schools of nursing uh, and, and even nurses, right? Because let's be honest, there's opportunity you know, to be able to really reach out and to find both you know, people of color and um, diversity to come into our programs to seek it out and that we are a open, uh, warm, open-minded place organization, right? That we want to hear your ideas. And then when, if we're not, we need to find out and we need to work on that. And so I'm really proud of the work of the task force, as well as the committee. 
there's plenty of work that still needs to be done. One of the things that we, particularly with officers and board members, trying to find folks that, you know, that are more diverse. And that was one of the charges. So we are, and of course, there's so much more work that needs to be done, but very, very passionate about that and wanting opportunities um, to, to promote that. Our fall summit that um, is in October, um, the 18th and 19th in New Orleans, uh, is also uh, addressing uh, diversity you know, uh, and advocacy, right? Because that goes hand in hand, right? Of course, with advocacy, it needs to make certain that we are being uh, open-minded and equitable and uh, truly just in how we uh, operate as an organization. And we also at our annual conference have um, speakers that are, are going to be addressing. And to your point, um, the racism in nursing and the report that came out with ANA, the reckoning of you know racism in nursing, uh, wanting to really to 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 talk about those reports and see how we as an organization can continue to work towards rectifying uh, in the racism that has existed. Of course, it, it, it and the first step always is recognition. That's right. And one of the very first steps we know as nurses is assessment. That's right? right. You have to gather information. Right. And that's why surveys are important, right. conversations important. We need data. Yes. And then we need the we need the more right-brained, you know, input as well, the creative input and the the feelings. You know, we can't just rely on data. We need to have right. we need to know about people's lived experience. And I think that's where the commission to address racism in nursing comes mm-hmm. in. Very recently, I did a two-part series with uh, commissioners from that commission, from various organizations to talk about that. So these reckonings are happening everywhere, and it's wonderful that the NACNS is doing its own internal reckoning. And I'm, I hope you can clue me in in case I miss it when the 2022 um, survey comes out, because I would really like to um, to take a look at that and see where you all are and where where you're headed. and. You know this the the CNS role is fascinating, and you also have some other fascinating roles that you've taken on over the years. And you started out thirty-ish years ago, a little mm-hmm. little before I became a nurse. I've I've been around about twenty-six years at this point. And did you start out with an associates or bachelor's or LPN? You know, what was your very first entry point? when you came into the profession? Well, my first entry was as a candy striper. But of course, as a volunteer that I always knew that I wanted to be a nurse. So I, I did, but I entered nursing uh, was a bachelor's, a BSN. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I started off in oncology uh, from mm-hmm. and from there. Uh, and then, as you mentioned, I've had a really uh, robust and, and a fascinating career. And, and I just, there've been so many wonderful nurses throughout uh, my careers, you know, that, um, and other folks as well, leaders that have reached their, you know, been supportive of me and in- encouraged me. And I think that that's something that is, that we do need to encourage one another and especially young, um, uh, you know, adults and, and young nurses as well to be kind to one another. And sometimes mm-hmm. we're not, but throughout the, the process, uh, then, as I mentioned, started the hospice agency uh, and then transitioned many, many years after with that um, to to the hospital where I'm currently at, the Carilion Run Memorial. And I was hired to start the palliative medicine team. 
and service. That didn't happen immediately because of some um, stakeholder issue. And so they said, do pay management. So I did, um, although was a little nervous about that. Uh, and then continued to work towards getting that palliative medicine program started. And I, and so much of what we do in palliative medicine, it, it doesn't have to just be at end of life, but a lot of what we uh, care for in the patients who have serious illness, who, who are at end of life with their advanced disease. And what I noticed when caring for these patients in, and within myself, as well as others among the team and the nursing staff and other physicians, is that many times there's a lot, there was distress, there was, um, we were hurting, we, we felt like we knew what the right thing to happen or to occur, but we were unable to make it happen or there were barriers and we, we felt helpless and powerless. And, and around that time, I was going back to get my doctorate, uh, my PhD, and in research. And so, you know, part of it's, well, why don't I go into the literature and see what I think we are experiencing and what I tumbled upon or stumbled upon um, was moral distress. And, you know, mm -hmm. moral distress is when we feel as though our moral integrity has been compromised and we're unable to act upon what we feel is the right thing to do. And so I'm like, that's it. That's it. That's exactly what I've been experiencing. And I think that's what my colleagues have been experiencing. And so I went to the my ethics committee and director at the point, and I was just, you know, I, I feel really passionate about this. I think this is happening. And he's like, well, we have a speaker and um, she's coming and she's a, a nationally known, internationally known expert on moral distress. Maybe you should talk to her. And her name, um, Dr. Ann Hamrick. And she had also written my CNS textbook so many years ago. So hmm. like a nerd, I took my textbook and, you know, to the, the session and she autographed it for me and she kind of laughed and, you know, shooed me off like, Are you, you know, you're so silly. But, and, and she also complimented, she said, well, you're too young to have gone through that textbook. So that was nice. I, I immediately fell in love with her for that comment. Hmm. But then that started a, a, a long um, mentorship with her and studying a moral distress. And, and that's um, part of that. My research led to the establishment of a moral distress consult service here at our organization. Um, the, the first one, we were the second one in the nation. Um, and I was really very proud of that. And it comes under ethics. And so that's part of the um, the deal I made is that uh, you know, if I'm going to start a moral distress consult service, I needed to get some additional training on ethics and I would become one of the ethics consultants as well. And so I welcomed that because I certainly didn't feel qualified as a, a clinical ethicist. And so I did, I went to an immersion training, ethics training, and, um, and they have been doing that for, um, the last 10 years or so. And so I've, I've really I've come to appreciate the, the consultation and, and, and being able to help my colleagues identify, first of all, what they're experiencing, and then to come up with strategies to help mitigate it. Right. So you're, you're a clinical ethicist and CNS mm -hmm. with Carilion Roanoke Memorial Hospital. Yes and the palliative care service there. And you're also an associate professor at Virginia Tech Carilion School of Medicine. And aside from the palliative medicine, moral distress consult service, and the work you do as a CNS, I understand what you told me offline before we hit record is that at Virginia Tech, there are some ethics classes that MD and RN students take together. And I've had a 
I have a dream <laughs> that medical students and nursing students will take more courses together. So what's that like for medical students and nursing students to come together in a classroom and talk about medical ethics? Well, I love it. I We've been doing this mm-hmm. for um, several years. It started um, pre-pandemic and there was a moment, of course, during the pandemic, we have to pause, but we're resuming that. And so I have the privilege of being part of uh, it, the interprofessional um, health uh, curriculum and in the topic of, being, of ethics. And so it's great with there are readings and assignments uh, a weekly basis. Um, and then they come together, small group work and both a combination of nurses, nursing students and medical students together to, to hear the different perspectives, to talk to one another. And I think what it does is foster, in addition to a better understanding of ethics and different perspectives, but it fosters teamwork and collaboration. Um, And it starts to role model what I feel like we all would say is the ideal for healthcare, right? That we're all in this, we're a team working together with a common goal, which is the patient. What is best for our patients? How can we accomplish that? And how can we support and supplement and complement one another? Um, And that, and we, and also to have a better understanding of one another, our training and our strengths and, and opportunities. So I have, really uh, enjoyed it. It ends uh, the course um, with a panel discussion with a large case. And so that's the the other really cool thing about this training is that it's case-based, right? It's patient, it's real. You know, when I was going through my initial ethics training way back in the day, it was boring, it was dry. It was just all philosophical, right? Um, And of course, you you have to learn the principles and of course it's important for the code of ethics. but what makes it so real to me when I get, get excited about ethics is when I can apply it in a clinical setting and create a framework to be able to navigate these really challenging, complex patient cases, right? Um, and it's, the question is, is not, can we do it? The real question is, should we do it? And how do we make a determination of what we should do? What's, the, what's medically and ethically appropriate? So I love this opportunity to be able to work with the students and both nursing and, the, and medical students. And they really thrive. It, it seems like it, uh, um, it's just such a nice, they get to know one another and they're friendly. And it's like, it, it's just exactly what you want, the collegiality that started in their training that will continue hopefully throughout their careers. I would love to see more and more of that mm. where medical and nursing students and others too, social work students, they come together and take some courses together. And I think that's a fantastic model of education. And, you know, if we want to understand one another, learning from that bef- that piece, that time before we become licensed professionals, before we're out there in the working world, where it's part of the formation of our medical brain or our nursing mind, right? Mm-hmm. That that ability to bring everyone together and have them be on the same page. And that's my vision for the future. And speaking of the future, mm-hmm. before we, we wrap up, what's the future of the CNS role? What you, Phyllis Whitehead, <laughs> if you had your druthers, what would the CNS role evolve into in, let's say, the next 25 years? 
Well, I would certainly want to see more schools, um, CNS programs, and uh, just like that growth um, that you, the statistic of nurse practitioners, I love to see clinical nurse specialists having a 40 to 50% growth uh, over the next 25 years. We need it. Mm -hmm. uh, I'd like to see that clinical nurse specialists have the recognition of the advanced practice nurses, you know, continue in all 50 states and that we're all allowed to practice at the top of our license, right? Um, and that we are seeing in every setting, not just in the acute care, but, you know, we are integrated um, in, in every setting, primary care, ambulatory. I think there's great opportunities in telehealth, right? Um, to being able to reach our patients. I would also for NACNS growth that, that there's, 89,000 CNS is because we're going to double them. I like it to be doubled, right? That we were looking at instead of more like 180 or 200,000 clinical nurse specialists in the United States. And that NACNF, you know, is growing and that we are well representing those, you know, 200,000 clinical nurse specialists internationally, globally, that we are coming together collectively and that we're working together and that there's the, the there's consistency and standardization among how we're educated um, so that there's a better understanding. And most importantly, I think that with all that growth of clinical nurse specialists, that, that we continue to see an improvement in patient outcomes, right? That we are improved health and wellness um, for our patients, our families, but also, I, I, I won't, what I would hope to see is that our clinical nurse specialists and all nurses and honestly, all healthcare clinicians are better taken care of, their well-being, right? That there are better means of putting in um, work-life balance. And I really think it should be life-work balance, right? So that, and that it, the environments in which we work are healthier, right? And that there are... Um, good climate and ethically appropriate climate that people want to come to work that they feel valued right and what wherever they wherever they work um and that they see and they can be replenished and there's resilience built in at the system level so i know that's wishful thinking but that's what i would want to see not only for clinical nurse specialists with huge growth but for all of us to be in a, a healthier, a much well, more well-being, professional, respected work environment for all of us. Wow. That was a mic drop of mic drops, Dr. Whitehead. That was really wonderful. You're going to have to go back and listen to that one a couple of times when people are tuning in here. That was a beautiful vision. And I, you know, you and I will come together in 2024 on episode like you know, 1,922 <laughs> and we'll, we'll um, talk about your successes in those spheres and we'll pop a bottle of champagne right <laughs> here on air. But no, that's a beautiful vision. And I, I love that. I love that. And I think that could be the thesis of your next book. <laughs> so there, there you go. Just gave you your next Thank book. Thank you. So yeah, I'd love to keep talking. We have to wind down. I have four quick questions. I ask all my guests. Are you game for some quick questions? Lightning round? Sure. Here we go. Okay. All right. First question is, how do you define success personally and or professionally? I think a feeling of value and respect. Uh, and so I think so many times, and I hear this over and over again, um, 
of course, we all need to be fairly compensated, but it's more than that, right? So that we feel as though people listen to us. It doesn't mean that we're always right or that all our suggestions are acted upon, but truly that we're heard. And so I think that respect and value, to me, that's success, not only professionally, but personally, and that you feel um, that that you're making a difference in this world, that you are leaving some element of footprint behind your legacy, whatever that may be. I like that. Thank you. Second question. Could you name, or if you don't want to name them, just describe one person who's inspired you in the course of your life. They can be living or dead. Mm -hmm. They can be famous or just someone that you know and none of us would know. That's good. I have a couple and I'll, I'll probably just make a co collectively. Some, okay. I think one of the things is um, throughout my career, if someone being able to recognize me and to call me out to say, I'm impressed with you, right? Um, I, I see potential in you, right? That you, someone that's encouraging. Uh, and that's happened to me on um, several realms of being able, and that little bit, that little just, you know, Taking that moment to have that kind word made all the difference in my my life to inspire me to that I I can accomplish I can achieve I can make it to the next level right to doing what I'm doing whatever the degree or whatever the certification whatever even the the shift so I think that that's always been someone who's just that that word of kindness that taking that moment to pause and to really see me to see mm -hmm. me and to just encourage me um, throughout. And there have been many folks who have done that throughout my journey. And I'm, I'm very fortunate to have had mm -hmm. that person. I'm glad you have. And I bet a lot of us can conjure up people like that. They might be mentors. They might be someone who just passed through our lives mm -hmm. really quickly. Could be a patient who mm -hmm. recognized something in mm -hmm. us, right? right? So that's yeah. that's lovely. I think most of us, hopefully all of us can relate to that on some level. Third question, is there a book or a movie, it doesn't have to be an absolute favorite, just whatever comes to mind, that's had an impact on the way you live your life, the way you think, you know, some aspect of who you are and who you've become? Well, that's a great one. I, the first one that comes in, because it's fun, is like Footloose. <laughs> mm -hmm. going, I love the music and the inspiration. And I think, I know it's a silly movie. Um, but it talks about overcoming and someone being different and seeing things differently and questioning that curiosity that we talked about. Um, of course, it was great music because, and it was a movie that was inspiring to me growing up, the first, the original, of course. Um, and so I also, it's a movie that's inspiring to me because it was also the last movie that, um, I went to see with my dad. Um, mm. and, 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 as a, uh, a young, uh, a young person. And um, I just, that was something that we always shared together. Um, and so it's more of a, um, a relationship, I think, than, than necessarily the theme, but I also, I think it is, it's a cool one. It's about love and, you know, seeking out acceptance and the importance of being who you are and being authentic and not letting someone, um, um, even though it, there's people in power and others that have more money or resources, try to change that. So I think just staying true to your path. 
Yeah, and the, the context of where and when and with whom we saw a movie or read a book has a lot to do with how it stays in our consciousness. So I, I love that. That that connects you to your dad. That's lovely. Last question. What's one piece of advice you would give 18-year-old Phyllis <laughs> right now, whether you think she would listen or not? <laughs> That's a good one. That's a really good question. <laughs> I The advice I would give 18-year-old Phyllis is to... Um, to, to not shy away from who you are and to know that you are worthy. You uh, can accomplish anything you put your mind to um, and that there are those who love you and who will support you and those who will encourage you throughout your entire life. Uh, th- th- that would be, I think. Mm-hmm. I know hopefully she would listen very intently. <laughs> Well, Dr. Phyllis Whitehead, this has been a real pleasure and honor and privilege. I encourage listeners to go to nacns.org to learn all about the National Association for Clinical Nurse Specialists. This episode is coming out right before your annual conference, so I hope you have a great time. And people can check the organization out on uh, Facebook as well and Twitter, and you're on LinkedIn mm-hmm. yourself. So mm-hmm. that'll all be in the show notes. And I can't thank you enough for illuminating the CNS role for us and also this whole notion of ethics and moral distress and the ways in which we can all come together to help each other through difficult times. So thank you for representing the organization and thanks for all the great work you do in the world in palliative care. Thank you so much for this wonderful opportunity and your listeners. And thank you for what you're doing for the nursing profession. It's been a pure pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you, Phyllis. Well, there you have it. Thanks for listening to this wonderful episode of the Nurse Keith Show with Dr. Phyllis Whitehead of the National Association of Clinical Nurse Specialists. The show notes will be at nursekeith.com. I hope you feel uplifted and empowered from this episode. And if you need personalized holistic career coaching, look no further than nursekeith.com. And if you mention the show, you can get 10% off your first coaching package. And if you want to become a patron over on Patreon, that would be awesome. And if you want to leave a rating and review over on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, I would give you a bow of gratitude for doing so. We're a proud member of the Health Podcast Network at healthpodcastnetwork.com. We are adroitly produced by Rob Johnston of 520R Podcasting and Mark Cappy Spiesen is our social media ringmaster and newsletter wrangler. Before we say goodbye, I'll leave you with this quote by author and Dr. Sherwin B. Newland. We die so that the world may continue to live. We have been given the miracle of life because trillions upon trillions of living things have prepared the way for us and then have died in a sense for us. We die in turn so that others may live. The tragedy of a single individual becomes in the balance of natural things, the triumph of ongoing life. And that's by Sherwin B. Newland. Be well, dig deep, seek joy, keep in touch. This is Nurse Keith saying adios till next time from beautiful Santa Fe, New Mexico. And Dr. Phyllis Whitehead saying arrivederci from? Roanoke, Virginia. Roanoke, Virginia. Thank you, Dr. Whitehead. Thank you for everyone for listening. And we'll catch you on the proverbial flip side.